we live under your eternal love, which chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that him, him we might have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. And not the hope of judgment, and not the expectation of condemnation, but uh, rather the hope of you lavishing the riches of your kindness on us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. Lord, help us to continually marvel at grace in its fullness, in its freeness, in its reality. And help us to live lives that demonstrate that wonder at grace through the obedience that we offer to you. Lives that are sacrifices to you. Lives that are pursuing holiness. Lives that are demonstrating that Christ, you are the one who is and we want to be more so the center of our affections. And so work these things in us. Even as we continue to consider how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling together through the process of helping one another on in the way of holiness for our blessing and for your glory. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, as you know, uh, we began last week a look at the topic of church discipline, particularly as it is laid out for us in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. So you can go ahead and make your way there uh, this morning as we'll read the text. And we are taking a slight break, a little detour from the churches that Christ, the exalted Christ, is addressing in Revelation uh, to take up the topic of church discipline because it is so central to his message to the churches. Essentially, as we've noted, Jesus is exercising discipline to the churches he's addressing, or at least five of the seven, and rebuking the churches themselves for not addressing the sin and the error that was among them. And so he's having to take things into his own hands, as it were. But Scripture has made very clear about the need for the people of God to pursue together holiness and truth and to help one another on to love and good deeds under the banner of Christ, whose name we bear. And so, again, our look at Matthew 18 is to help us consider that afresh and new before we look at the final three churches. Now, as I noted last week, and we will read the passage in just a moment, the the words church discipline are actually not found in Matthew 18. However, the concept is there, and that's what usually is uh, being talked about, of course. And so we thought just as a way to get a basic understanding, what do we mean by the very terms church discipline? Well, the church, as we noted, is the professing, the gathering of professing believers. And by the gathering of professing believers, it is those who claim to have come to a repentant faith in Christ, to be born again, to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, to be in union with Christ, to be pursuing having the same faith, hope, and love in Christ, and be pursuing the same interest in Christ and the same goal of growing in righteousness and holiness and, and so forth. And so that is the idea of it, at least as we understand the church. There's been different views of the church uh, throughout the ages, but we would hold to a regenerate membership. No one is a member of the church if they do not display a genuine work of the Spirit of God in their heart. And discipline is simply the way that uh, the body of Christ enforces the commandments of Christ and the direction of Christ. It's simply the way that we talk about 
how we as the people of God pursue holiness and obedience to the commandments of Christ. And so the church made up of regenerate believers in union with Christ then help one another through the process of dealing with sin and error and encouraging on to obedience to our Lord uh, practice the life of Christ in us. And so that's the basic idea. And so the key to understanding church discipline is not simply a matter of dissecting a process, which is how we often look at it. It is coming to grips with the very nature of God, the nature of salvation, the nature of the church and body life and what it means to be the body of Christ. We noted that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this idea of the church as reflecting the nature and the character of God is captured in this statement, you shall be holy for I am holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. Now, just by way of review, uh, we looked at this last week uh, by considering a few passages in the Old Testament. We looked first at Leviticus chapter 10. And by looking at these passages, the, the point was to note that at very specific and poignant moments in the progress of Revelation and in the redemptive history, God accented this reality that he requires that his people reflect his holiness uh, in significant ways, in significant ways particularly in which he dealt with sin. In Leviticus 10, he did this at the very establishment of the worship of the tabernacle under the Mosaic law. And we noted at the end of chapter 9, there were some sacrifices that were offered. Fire came out and consumed those sacrifices. And then we have the account of Nadab and Abihu, who were sons of Aaron, who were exercising their role as their priestly role. And yet they did so in an unholy manner. Uh, they offered what was described as strange fire, and so that the fire of God came out to consume them. And then God told Aaron that he was not to mourn and in any way diminish the holiness and the glory of God for what he had done. And then we looked at Joshua chapter 7, which is the account of Achan, which happens soon after Israel had, after wandering in the, the wilderness for 40 years, and that generation that rejected him died off. The second generation is ready to go into the land of Canaan, into the inheritance that God had promised them. And all of Deuteronomy is about Moses preparing them and. Under, under God's authority to preparing them to enter the land by reminding them of what the law was and reminding them of the blessings and curses and reminding them of the grace that God had shown to them, but the way that that grace is to be reflected in their obedience to him. And so they enter into the land and God miraculously parts the Jordan River and they enter into the land of Canaan and they have victories, the most notable being of Jericho where the walls fell down, you remember, and they enter and they take over that city but then they're defeated by a rather small army at Ai and and God identifies it's because sin is in your midst and so he directs this process it's found to be a man by the name of Achan who confesses his sin but he is as a consequence stoned to death and they heap up piles of stone uh, over him afterwards uh, to show that God will take sin seriously and to show that there is a corporate effect of sin Achan's sin affected the whole body. And the point, again, is that God takes sin seriously, and he wants, at very specific times, to emphasize this to his people. 
We are his people, he is holy, and we are to reflect him to the world and for his glory and for our good. Now, sometimes we think then that is the big, bad, mean, and ugly God of the Old Testament who's just always angry and seeming to look at a reason to strike someone down dead. But now we're in the New Testament and we have this very gentle figure by the name of Jesus who just is nothing but love and gentleness and grace everywhere he goes. Wouldn't say a bad word if he had to. Never confront anything negative in somebody else's life. But that, in fact, is very different than the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of Scripture who went into Jerusalem on the final week of his life and made accords and drove out everybody from the temple because they were desecrating the holiness of God's name there. He said, this is my father's house. It should be a house of prayer. And you're making it into a a den of robbers and of thieves. You're polluting the pure worship of God. It's the same Jesus who excoriated the, the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy and said to them, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you together, but instead not one stone will be left on another judgment's going to come, which he did just a few decades after he died, 70 AD. But not only that, but at another significant point in the history of the progress of redemption, God wanted to accent this And that is in the book of Acts. And you will remember that at the beginning, or at Acts, it is the account of the establishment of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit, establishing the body of Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the Spirit that unites people to Christ and grants repentance and faith and is forming the body of Jew and Gentile together in one body. And so this is a significant transition in this, in this work of God establishing Christ as the very center of God's purposes and works. And so he has ascended, Christ has, up to the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit. He's given the first sermon through the mouth of Peter. And the body of Christ has formed the new community of God. And it is a time of joy. It is a time of unity. He says in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching in chapter 2. And to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And so it was just a, a great great time of unity, a great time of joy, a great time of amazement, and these wonderful things are are being done, and the people of God are excited, and they're being built up, and the, the gospel is going forth. It's an amazing scene and an amazing time, and it's giving great glory to God, and it's attracting the attention of all of those around in Jerusalem. But as the the name of Christ through the church began to grow, so did the persecution. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 4, Many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. But then we have immediately after that the account of the Jewish leaders being threatened by this growth of bringing in the the apostles, flogging them and telling them that they can no longer speak in this name to which, of course, they rejoice at the opportunity to suffer for Christ and they continue preaching in the name of Christ. And in this context, the church is continuing to grow, just as Jesus said, beginning in Jerusalem, later going out to Judea, Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, it isn't until Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that the disciples were first called Christians, and that as a term of derision. 
And that came about, however, because they were clearly identified with the name of Christ. He was the sole substance of their proclamation. And so, in other words, Christ, just as he did with Israel in the Old Testament, attached his name to his people. And so that came not only with a great display of the grace of God for saving sinners, but also with great responsibility. And so it is in this flow of the account of the church that we come into chapter 5. Well, actually, even at the end of verse, uh, chapter 4. In verse 32, those who he says of the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. And with great power, listen, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was given to them. And, and so there was no needy person among them in verse 34, and all of those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales sales and lay them down at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed as they had need. You have to remember by identifying with Christ, and most of these are Jews, they were losing their livelihood, being ex uh, excommunicated from their families or taken, uh, removed from their families. They, many of them are giving up everything, all of their worldly possessions. And so this new, this new community gathered in Christ is meeting those needs of those who had had them, and it was again a, a great time of joy and a great time of sharing. And he even gives the account of Barnabas the apostle, uh, who Barnabas, son of encouragement, who owned a tract of land bought and uh, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But then we immediately have the account in chapter 5, and you may be familiar with this, but let's review it together. And you have a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, who sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet. And so in other words, they're, they're trying to get in this stream. They're saying, hey, we want to be a part of that too. They sold some stuff. And then they kept a little bit of money aside for themselves. And then they took a portion and they laid it at the apostles' feet. The problem was this. When they laid it at the apostles' feet, they were saying this was the total price for the land. They were lying. They were not telling them and revealing the full price of the land. They were keeping back some of it for themselves. And that draws out of Peter this response in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your power? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. In other words, in short, this, Ananias, you are under no obligation to give everything. It's your money. It's your land. Whatever you gave was a free will offering. It was a freedom of your own faith in Christ you could have kept some of the land and said we're giving this portion but rather instead the implication is you wanted to be honored among others you wanted to seem more gracious and magnanimous than you actually were and so in fact you've ended up lying to God and what was God's response in verse 5 as he heard these words Ananias he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came over all of those who heard of it God struck him dead Slightly less dramatic than fire coming out as it did with Nadab and Abihu, but nonetheless dramatic and great fear came over and they're like, whoa, this is serious. This is pretty serious business. And so the young men in verse 6 got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. 
Now, there was an, there elapsed an interval of about three hours. Obviously, his wife had gone away somewhere, Sapphira. She didn't know what had happened, and she comes back. They had colluded together in this lie and the plan that they have. And so in verse 7, not knowing what had happened, Peter responded to her and said, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to it, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately in verse 10, she fell at his feet and breathed her last. God killed her. He struck her dead. And he did it publicly, he did it before all those who were there to make the point, God knows the truth, he knows you're lying and you are accountable. And God will not tolerate that in his church. He will not tolerate that among his people. And look at verse 11, and a great fear came over the whole church and all who heard of these things. They knew that God is serious about sin. God is serious about sin, and God is serious about sin because he is serious about his glory among his people. Now, if we were to stop right there in our contemporary thinking, in the church's contemporary thinking as Christians, we'd go, well, that's a, that's a terrible plan of church growth. That won't work at all. We need to be so much more accepting and know that, look, we can overcome those things and overlook them. Nobody's going to want to be a Christian if you're going to hold up holiness like that. What a terrible strategy. We need to get some consultants in here to help us figure out how to do it right. But we, of course, know that is not what happened. That is not what happened. It says, look, at verse 12, in the hands of the apostles, many signs continued to take place with one accord. And none of the, none of the rest dared to associate with them, those who did not have pure hearts, those who were not trusting in Christ, and those who were not seeking the glory of God. They didn't want to associate with them. However... We'll come back to this later. The people held them in high esteem. And look at verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And they were coming from all over then to be a part of this church, this body. Those who did not have pure hearts, who were not ready to be exposed before the Lord, stayed away. But those who did understand the reality of what that meant, and that is personal sin, and God knows it, and flocked to the redemption of the message of the gospel that was proclaimed for the forgiveness of their sin, they ran to the church because they knew that God was there. And they knew that that is the place where God dwells. And though God is holy, God is also gracious. And again, those who are honestly willing to deal with sin ran to it. But here's the thing. The church grew in its validity. Grew in its validity. In other words, it didn't invalidate the church and the message of the gospel. It validated the message of the gospel. These things are real. This is true. It authenticated the message of the apostles and the message of the body of believers to the world that was watching them. It authenticated the gospel. Again, just very different than how many think today. And the reality is this. 
that the church's witness is directly related to her, the power of the church's witness, how she stands out from the world and how she stands out from the culture, not how much she can blend into it. Now, we're not, we'll come back to some of these things. We're not talking about rudeness. We're not talking about foolishness. We are talking about holiness. And inasmuch as the righteousness of God is at conflict with the world around us, that conflict and that distinction needs to be very clear. It actually needs to be very clear. Not unclear, not vague, not muddled, not dull, not foggy. It needs to be very clear. Now we clearly, we, to use that word again, understand that in our time as well. The church needs to have a clear message on sexuality. The church needs to have a clear message on gender. The, the church needs to have a clear message on abortion, a clear message on sin and of righteousness and as well as the gospel of Christ. The church needs to have a clear message and that is her power. That is where the testimony is the strongest. That is where God's name is the most clearly lifted up and seen. And it is here, in this example, that God wants to do that, though upholding his holiness and his righteousness. Just as an interesting illustration, many could be given. Uh, Greg Wills, a uh, hist uh, church history professor out at uh, Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, uh, notes this, that before the Civil War, quote, Southern Baptists excommunicated nearly 2% of their membership every year. Another commenting on that noted that their churches grew at twice the rate of the population growth. The church grows when she's serious about the gospel, when she's serious about holiness, but it grows with a true growth, not a false growth and not a superficial growth and not an empty growth, but a real growth of those who want to know Christ. And in fact, if you look again, or we'll note again, that... At the end of verse 13, the people held them in high esteem. And let me tell you this, as, as you, many of you already know, but the church maintains her integrity even before the world when she's consistent with what she proclaims. When you're wishy-washy as a Christian, when you're wishy-washy on the truth and doing everything you can not to offend with the truth, again, not with your personality and not with just being a, a jerk, but with actually with the truth, if we, if we try to minimize the sharp edges of the gospel and of holiness and of sin and righteousness, then we actually invalidate the gospel and we lose a sense of integrity even before the world, even before the world who rejects the gospel. People respect boldness and courage and consistency with what you believe. They don't respect somebody who's wishy-washy and too often that's what the church is. And so, gee, God is making the point here, however, that his name is attached to his people. And just as he had said in the Old Testament, he will be treated as holiness, in his holiness. And that holiness is our witness to the world and the reality of the message of grace in Christ Jesus. And so that is behind church discipline. That is behind the instructions of the Lord is that we understand the nature of God and the nature of the church is bearing the life of God and the witness of God to the world, the nature of salvation, that it comes with transformation. It comes with a new attitude towards sin and towards righteousness and towards Christ and towards the word and towards truth. Behold, we are new creations. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. 
And so that is the witness of the church. That is the spiritual reality of the church. And that lies behind that understanding, the Lord's instructions here. Both in Revelation, throughout Scripture, and here particularly in Matthew chapter 18. But before we read the passage, let me make one other thing. So that the purpose then, this is under the point of the purpose of church discipline, and that is to glorify God. And a second one is to work good to his people. It's for the good of his people. It's for the glory of God and the good of his people. And all of that being said, let me note this as well, that God delights in doing good. God delights to doing good. He, does, he wants to bless his people. He wants to bless them as a body. He wants to bless them individually. He wants to display the overwhelming generosity of his nature. God wants to do that. He delights in doing that. And sin brings opposition to his ability to do that. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. God wants to hear prayer. He invites us to hear prayer, but he won't make compromise with sin in the heart. God wants to bless his people. He wants to do good with his people, but he will not compromise with sin and a lack of holiness in their life. And so that actually, just as a little side note, is when we see the lack of that in our life, the first thing that we should do is self-examination and consider it and ask the Lord to search us and to know us doesn't mean that there's some sin that we're being disciplined for, but we should start there. It's a good place to start. But I would just note here very briefly that God wants to do good to his people. And that as well is, is considering the nature of God and of salvation behind the instructions of church discipline. He wants to do good. He wants the blessing and the protection and the delight of his people. Uh, this wasn't planned, but Eddie read it earlier uh, or in, he mentioned it in his prayer in the call to worship, Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Listen to this. Even when his people sin, God would rather that there be repentance and blessing than judgment. Just listen, I'm going to read it. Uh, Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his ways and live. That's God's heart. Rather that he would turn from his ways and live. And even when there are patterns of sin in, God's, in the life of God's people, and even when he assures them that judgment will come, and didn't we see this as well, even with the church at Pergamum and Thyatira, I gave her time to repent, I gave her time, he sent messages, and she would not do that. But Christ kept pleading, in a sense, with this, the, the false teacher there and those who were being deceived by her to repent and to turn. And we see this heart of God throughout Scripture, even when his people go deep, deep, into sin. Listen to this, the heart of God in Jeremiah 32. Just listen, and this is anticipating the new covenant. He says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. And remember, he's saying this to a people. He's saying judgment's going to come, but he's always giving this encouragement and saying judgment is not the last word. My goodness is, my grace is towards those whom I will bless. He says this, in Ezekiel, or excuse me, uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 39, he says, or for 38, they shall be my people, I will be their God, I will give them one heart, one way that they may fear me, listen, for their own good, and for the good of their children after them, I'll make an everlasting covenant with them, I will not turn away from them, listen, to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away. Verse 41, I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Verse 42, for thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I'm going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. 
Now notice the connection there. God's heart and his desire is for the good of his people. It is to bless them. It is to give them flourishing. It is to give them flourishing spiritually and even in life he wants to bless them. But that blessing is directly attached to what? The fear of God in their heart and walking in his ways. How is God going to bless them when he produces in them obedience and trust in his promises, his covenant promises? So those two things are connected. So God deals with sin and takes sin seriously in our own life and in the life of his people in part because he wants to bless them and he wants to do good. And again, that's even behind the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, that we might share in his holiness and in sharing in his holiness, we will know the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We'll have blessing. We'll have joy. And so that's God's purpose in dealing with sin. But... To produce that, he will deal with sin. He cannot overlook it. He cannot overlook it and maintain his glory. He cannot overlook it and give the abundance of his goodness to his people. There needs to be repentance. And that's where we come now into the third point under our outline. One was prolegomena, just introductory matter. I tried to find a P and to stay with the P. The next was the purpose, and this is the process of church discipline. And so we're going to just introduce it uh, this morning. We're just going to introduce it uh, this morning. What is the process of church discipline? Well, now let us read our text together, and then we'll swing back around. So Matthew 18, uh, beginning in verse 15 to verse 20. He says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And with that, let's consider then now first the process of church discipline. The process of church discipline. And we'll look at the first one in verse 15 this morning, private confrontation. Private confrontation. Again, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is a simple and straightforward command to his people on how to deal with sin among the members. And this is a further application, as we noted, of the parable of the sheep, of how we seek the one that has gone astray, or the one we see going astray, or the one we see with the potential to go astray. We go to them. We go to them individually and we go to them privately to point out sin. Now, before we look at this a little more, let me just make a footnote. And this is in part from a conversation I had this week with someone regarding this process. And, and, and that is simply this as a, as a note. We have in our minds overly formalized, I think, the process of church discipline. We've made it kind of this process over here, like we have normal Christian life and then we have this thing over here, that process of, of church discipline that you enter into. And that's, that's not really an accurate way to look at it or a very helpful way to look at it either. He's simply referring to body life. 
He's simply referring to body life. There's many other ways that he addresses this in Scripture, and we'll look at some of those uh, as we go. But this is addressing one another so that nobody falls into the deceitfulness of sin. This is encouraging one another to love and good deeds. This is walking and speaking the truth and love to one another. This is simply normal body life. In fact, every time we address sin in someone else's life, uh, we're, we're in the process of God disciplining his church through one another. We're in the process of pursuing holiness together. The, the steps that are given in Matthew 18 are simply now what do we do as we live out body life together when somebody is unrepentant? What do we do when they will not listen? And then that's where we get the progression that we see from the lips of our Lord and how to deal with that. So it's not really just some over there process, this is highly formed kind of thing. He's really simply talking about how believers live together in fellowship and pursue truth and holiness together. That's what he's talking about. So let's just make a few observations to begin. A few simple observations. First of all, he says in verse 15, if your brother sins. Now, the obvious assumption here, an obvious observation is that there will be sin among the members. We will sin against others and we will be sinned against. It's called not yet being in our glorified states. That is the reality of salvation. We are both sinners and saints at the same time, righteous and unrighteous. We are new creatures. We are born again. We are in union with Christ. We are justified. We are sanctified positionally. We are being sanctified progressively. One day it will be perfect and we'll be just like Christ. But in that meantime, we have indwelling sin. The principle of sin is, remains in us. And so we will sin against one another and we will be sinned against. And this is simply a recognition of that. It's simply a recognition of that. Salvation, unfortunately, does not bring the immediate eradication of sin from our lives. That's something we wait for. So in the meantime, Jesus tells us how do we deal with it. Well, there's a variety of ways, and I'm going to mention these because they are, they're distinct, but they go together. One is the Spirit does this work himself internally through conviction of sin internally through conviction of sin. So we as individuals, so Paul said to the Galatians, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you may not do the things that you please. In other words, the Holy Spirit in the life of a regenerate believer resists sin. Resists sin. One of the clearest marks of regeneration and the assurance of salvation is not the absence of sin, but the hatred of sin. The being bothered by sin, being made miserable by sin, that's evidence of salvation. And then taking that sin and looking to the grace of God and to the forgiveness in Christ and being renewed again in our love for Christ to walk in obedience. That's, that's the Christian life right there. That's the process we're in. And that's why legalism and, is such an abhorrent hypocrisy. No, we're, we're dealing with sin if we're believers, and that sin humbles us and teaches us grace. So the, the Spirit does this internally through conviction, but the Spirit also does this externally through other believers in the body of Christ in whom he indwells, and that is through the confrontation that is mentioned here. So the first simple observation is don't expect to go through your whole life as a Christian in the church and not be sinned against. 
Now, we're not going to go down this road, but that has huge implications for those who have bad church experiences and just want to remove themselves, extricate themselves from the body of Christ and live their solo John Wayne Christian life out somewhere, just checking in with their favorite sermons, uh, their favorite preachers, never being accountable to anyone, never being under any leadership, never being responsible to serve anyone, to die to self, to exercise giftedness in the body. And it produces a great amount of pride very often and a great amount of judgmentalness. I take this preacher and I go to this church because they have what I like, but when anything confronts me or gets too difficult, I'm out of there. We shouldn't expect that we go through the Christian life without sin and people sinning against us. Uh, that's just a part of what it is, so we just need to learn to deal with it in light of the gospel. That's just a footnote. Now, what do we do when that sin happens? Well, notice next, just simple observation. Go and show him his fault in private. Go and show him his fault in private. And again, this is just assuming, this is assuming that the church is a community of people living together in some level of personal relationship. In some level of personal relationship, one, that the sin can be identified, and number two, that there would be the context of relationship where you could privately meet with someone. And you could go to them, maybe that it's happening naturally, but here it is specifically going to them for that reason, to privately meet with them, to show them their sin. Number three, just simple observation. We'll unfold these more. Uh, he says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And the glorious truth is, is that the assumption of Christ, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit and because of the desire to walk in righteousness, the assumption here by Christ is that most of these will end this way. Most of it's going to end this way. Most of what happens in the life of the body when we have to address sin with one another is going to end, if not perfectly right in that exact moment, uh, it will in the near future end in some kind of reconciliation, some kind of repentance and the extension of forgiveness, some kind of acknowledgement of wrong, and where brothers can walk in peace and harmony and sisters together again. The assumption is that most of it will have a positive result, and that really defines the goal throughout which is to win your brother back, which is to restore them back to the good graces of God and to restore that relationship and that fellowship, uh, that it could be sweet among the people of God. So this is both the goal and the expectation. Repentance and forgiveness are the general flavor of this kind of loving confrontation within the church. Now let's just take those observations and consider them a little bit more. First of all, that means then that we need to identify sin. We need to identify sin. So this is a question, what kind of sin are we to confront? What kind of sin are we to confront? The term here is one you're familiar with, hamartano, and it has the basic meaning of missing the mark, transgression, stepping over the line, disobeying a command, something that was clearly we're told to do and we do opposite or fail to do. It's missing the mark. It's a general term for sin. And that mark, of course, is measured by God's righteousness, not our own standards, things that are clearly sin, things that God has committed. So it's not, as we noted earlier in, in the messages of legalism and love, not you know, confronting somebody over their hair being the wrong length or their, their clothes being the wrong whatever. It is actual sin, actual things that violate God's righteous standard any failure to conform to it. So that, that is the idea here of sin. In the Old Testament, that was a little easier, or 
that was everything that was commanded in the law of Moses in the New Testament. It just means any command that's given to us in the New Testament is the general sense of law. It is a command. It's something that's binding on us as the people of God to obey and to do. That's behind the idea of the law of Christ. And so here it is, any sin, any failure to conform to righteousness, any failure to conform to righteousness. Uh, John puts it this way in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It's a violation of a command of God, a standard of God clearly established in his word. Now notice here, first then, that Jesus is talking about clear violations of a command to Scripture, something that can be substantiated and observed by others. Remember, if they don't repent, then we're to take two, one or two more with us and then tell it to the church. That means it has to be something that comes with evidence that's clearly demonstrable, able to be demonstrated. It is something that we can take and others can bear witness to as well. It has to be a clear violation, a clear violation of God's standards. Uh, Jesus is not talking about here, uh, just as a side note to this, about judging motives of another person. Remember, Jesus warns about that in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. We are not to go on passing judgment on motives. God will bring all of that to light at the end when we stand before Christ. So we're not to be, we're confronting one another over motives. When we suspect motives, we should ask that person and talk to them and then take them at their word. So we want to be very careful there uh, as well. And many of us know who have those kind of conversations, one of the most frustrating and irritating things is when somebody wrongly judges our motives. Uh, and so we were to be careful with that. But that said, I would note this, that we should also be willing to talk to one another just as a general rule about patterns that we see in each other's lives. Jerry Bridges calls these acceptable sins. And there's sometimes the sins that are violations of God's command, but we tend to tolerate a little bit more, just some of the ones he lists. It's a good book. Uh, you should read it. Sins such as a constant pattern of consistent anxiety, frustration, irritability, unthankfulness, lack of self-control, selfishness, envy. Those kind of things are sin as well. And, and it should fall in the broadest sense uh, under the command here to care for one another. Now let me make one note. He says there in verse 15, if your brother sins, some of you have Bibles that say sins against you. So there's if your brother sins or if your brother sins against you. And that's simply a manuscript issue. In some of the earlier manuscripts, there's a little phrase there that means against you is included in other manuscripts. It's not. It's not given in a high uh, rating of confidentiality that it was in the text. The, uh, those scholars who make these decisions uh, suggest that it's most likely that it wasn't, and that's why the NASB anyway retains simply if your brother sins. However, in either case, both are true. Both are supported by Scripture in, in the way that we should, uh, or the kind of sins that we should address. If it is left against you, then Jesus is referring to matters in which you are personally sinned against by another. And in fact, that finds some support in the parable that follows because Peter, after these instructions, immediately says to Jesus, what? How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, seven times 70. And obviously, he's not giving a number there. It's not, it's not doing multiplication. He's simply saying every time uh, that he comes to you. And so it finds support in that. And that's very, that's very possible. 
Uh, it may be because of that parable that some of the scribes, as the transmission of the text, put against you in there as the implied meaning. Uh, you can't know that for sure. And since the Lord says, go to that person privately, uh, that we're to go to them literally between you and him alone, uh, it could be that that is uh, what he's referring to. However, if it's not left, if it's uh, just left as when your brother sins, then it's a bit broader. It's any sin observed by another, whether it's against you personally or not. And in fact, that finds support in the parable as well. If you remember, the one who has been forgiven and was unforgiving, the other slaves went and reported to the king about what they had observed. And so both of those find support. I lean to the fact that it should not be in there and that the NASB made a good decision. Uh, uh, anyway, so that if your brother sins and that it's a broader, more broadly meant observed by another. So it could be against you personally or it could be a sin that you see in someone else that was not against you personally but was clearly a sin. Jesus has already addressed the matter of stumbling blocks among God's people that we are to avoid putting in their way and also addressing those kind of stumbling blocks that are placed in another's way to help them overcome them and to avoid them. How we are to go after a sinning member who strays, that's the context as well. So the idea there is that we see someone going down a pattern of sin, not necessarily they sinned against us. And I think that's the idea here that Jesus has. A similar usage in a different occasion is in Luke 17, 3 through 4. He says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, so he's noting two, two different categories here. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. So here it implies the idea is personal offenses is probably the main idea, but it, or is included there, but it leaves it open to the sin in general, sin in general. So what does he mean here? If your brother sins, if your brother sins against you by offending you, his one idea, or if your brother simply sins and is not conforming to God's pattern of righteousness, uh, then you are, in both of those cases, to go and to address them, to go and address them. And so we are to take sin seriously. But let me note one point here, that unqualified, this can lead to problems. And again, next, after I say this, I'm going to address three guidelines for the kind of sin that we should address. But let me just note, if it's unqualified, this can lead to a lot of problems. You can end up in an environment where it's just the sin police everywhere. You know, every little sin, every little... Imagine uh, it's like being in a close relationship or a marriage. If, if all they're ever doing is pointing out sin. Uh, you sinned. Your, your tone was wrong here. You did this wrong. You said this wrong. You, I mean, my oh my, would that be miserable. We know those kind of relationships uh, they, where there's always just sin. As a matter of fact, we, we, are, we are fully in support of biblical counseling, uh, what used to be called nuthetic counseling. In other words, saying the scripture is sufficient to, to live life and godliness even for the serious problems, not just the little problems and spats that people have, but for the real issues of life and all of its fullness that scripture is sufficient. And biblical counseling takes that seriously, the sufficiency of scripture, and addresses it. Why do I mention that? Because sometimes, having grown up in an environment where that's strongly held, I've been around and actually lost friendships over this, one in particular, uh, where uh, everything becomes a sin and digging down to the heart motive. 
and where every relationship is trying to figure out the motive of what was behind what you said, that's oppressive. We can't live like that. That's not how we're to live with one another. Dressing sin doesn't mean trying to hunt down and find every sin in the believer's life or thinking that every sin against us is something that needs rebuke and confrontation. Life doesn't work like that. We're sinners, and thankfully, Christ doesn't treat us like that. Can you imagine if Christ disciplined you for every sin, every wrong attitude, and he who sees you perfectly? You live in a constant state of discipline. So would I. So that's not what he means. I mean, love covers sin. Love has a generosity towards one another. Love believes all things and hopes all things, and that should be the general character of the way that we live with one another. And so he's not talking about just addressing every sin. He's not talking about addressing any sin all the time or at any time or whatever. We all struggle with certain areas and there is a graciousness that we have with one another. We tolerate one another and we forbear with one another. And so we want to be careful there of just picking out any sin and every sin. So then what kind of sin is he talking about? What kind of sin then should we address? Well, let me note just very briefly three guidelines. Three guidelines on when we should confront sin. One, first, is this. When that sin becomes a hindrance to fellowship. When that sin becomes a hindrance to fellowship. Whether in a personal relationship or within the body of Christ. When that sin is putting distance between two brethren within the body of Christ. And where they can no longer fellowship with one another with joy. And that individual. Uh, we see one example of this in the book of Philippians chapter 4. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And he says in verse 2, very personal note, I urge Judea and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, look, there's disharmony there. There's disfellowship. That needs to be addressed. These two sisters, in this case, need to come together. And they need to work out their differences. And they need to be restored in their ministry of the gospel and in their joy and their love for one another in the body of Christ. In Titus chapter 3... Uh, Paul says this in verse 9 and 10. That we are to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. And he says in verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and a second warning. What kind of sin? Someone who's being factious. Someone who is being divisive in their attitude. Someone who is causing a break in the fellowship among the body and encouraging foolish controversies that do not build up others but rather separate people. A person who gets up on, hung up on secondary issues and doctrines in a way that causes division. That is the kind of sin that is to be confronted. It's causing a break in the fellowship. Uh, our membership covenant says this. And this is primarily related to error, but it, the, the point is the same. It says, I hereby agree not to teach against and cause dissension or openly oppose any doctrines as noted in the statement of faith and will abide by NBC policies as stated in the Constitution and bylaws. It doesn't mean agreement. It means that there won't be divisiveness. There won't be an intentional, factious spirit that seeks to divide and bring one over into a per their own camp. 
uh, it'll understand that that is not promoting the unity of the body. As a matter of fact, it says, in stating the above, I do also recognize that I am not required to be in complete agreement in every detail of the statement of faith, but have room to differ on certain doctrines not directly related to the gospel and those matters essential to saving faith in Jesus Christ. However, I am coming up under the leadership of NBC and in greeting not to be divisive, but in the spirit of Christ-like love, will discuss matters of disagreement privately and in a godly manner. And that's just reflecting the very idea here is that we are not divisive. And so when should we confront sin when it causes a break in the fellowship? In 3 John 9, John has to address Diotrephes. He says, who loves to be first among men and does not accept what we say. If I come, I will call attention to his deeds. Why? He's causing division in the church. He's causing division and problems within the church. And he needs to be opposed and he needs to be opposed publicly. Uh, I would note this too. When there's sin in a personal relationship where you find yourself distancing from someone or starting to develop habits of bitterness or grumbling or a critical spirit towards them in your heart, that's the kind of sin that needs to be addressed. You need to go to that person and you need to reveal to them the offense that is real or perceived and seek reconciliation with them. So if something is developing in your heart with bitterness, and, and this is important for us to remember when we come to the Lord's table, isn't it? We come here in the Lord's table as a picture of unity, as a picture of our oneness in Christ. And so if we have in our hearts bitterness where we've sinned against someone else and we've not sought for forgiveness or where somebody has uh, sinned against us and we realize we've not forgiven them, we need to deal with that uh, in our hearts before we take the table or we take it in an unworthy manner. So we need to deal with sin when it causes a break in fellowship, when it's factious, or when it somehow brings a distance in a relationship. We need to deal with sin, secondly, when it's habitual. When it's habitual, when it's ongoing. Now this is not to say that if a person only commits adultery or murder or stealing once, then we shouldn't address it. There are categories of sin. There is a significance to sin, different kinds of sin, clearly. And scripture recognizes that. But we are to say in those kind of sins that don't rise to that level, and those sins that can, in a general sense, just be overlooked, but they are continual, they're habitual in a person's life, they're ongoing, and there doesn't seem to be any change or even recognition of that pattern in their life, then we should go to that person. We should go to that person and we should help them to see their sin. We should help them to notice they may be blind to it. Let me give you just one example of that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, he says this. Um, in verse 11, he says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. He's not saying somebody had an a lazy day and they slept in and they didn't get all their work done. He's not saying one day was particularly unproductive because they were undisciplined in how they did it and you should rebuke them. But he's saying there's a pattern in their life. They continually are leading an undisciplined life. They're not focused on work. They're not focused on meeting their own needs and they're mooching off other people and they're expecting other people to make up for their slack because they're being lazy. He says, well, that's somebody that needs to be uh, addressed. That's somebody who needs to be confronted. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ 
to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. And if they don't want to work, he had said earlier, then don't let them eat. So there is a time when there's an habitual sin. That's just one illustration. We can think of many others. If it's continually something you see in their life. You know, so for example, as I mentioned it earlier, some maybe simple illustrations of that. If somebody's constantly grumbling, if somebody's constantly in conversation expressing jealousy and envy over someone else, if someone you see in their life is continually displaying a lack of self-control and that's leading to all kinds of problems, if somebody's continually showing laziness in their life and not motivated to work hard and those kind of things, then, then we should go to them in love and point those things out to them for their good. Let me note a third guideline here. Uh, when it's habitual, when it causes a break in fellowship, we should go to them, whether it be within the body of Christ, whether it be with us personally and personal relationships. We should go when it's habitual in their, in their life. We see it as a pattern and something that we want to help them recognize. And thirdly, if it's error, false teaching, error is a threat to the church and the unity to the church. I did see a great, great quote. I hope I get this right. I, I think I will. Uh, it was a Pinterest quote. Uh, but anyway, it was from a preacher that we, we all appreciate. Uh, but the quote was this, is that doctrine, people come to me all the time and says, doctrine divides. And the response was, yes, doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. And it's true. And so... We need to be careful when we see patterns of false teaching. This isn't doctrinal conformity in all areas. We're talking about teaching that is demonstrative flawed. The teaching that Paul was addressing in Tim to Timothy, uh, to, telling him to, to address, the teaching that denies the resurrection. We're talking about the teaching of 1 John where he says, those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, this is the spirit of Antichrist. We're talking about the teaching that Peter warns about where people are distorting hard, hard sayings of Paul and teaching things that are uh, ungodly, essentially. Those kind of things that we are to address. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.20, we had mentioned this uh, at an earlier point, he did this with Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So teaching that undermines essential doctrines of the faith and of salvation must be addressed, must be addressed. In fact, that's a large portion of the New Testament. So these are just some general rules, general rules. What kind of sin should we address? That which is habitual, that which causes a break in fellowship, and that which is of doctrinal error of such a sort that it undermines the gospel and sanctification and the message of Christ. Another general rule would be this, just overseeing all of those, is that before we go to someone, we should prayerfully consider the matter. And I would suggest that if there's any movement of conscience that prompts you to go to a brother or sister, we have the responsibility before Christ and for their good to do so. I was in a conversation this morning about that very thing. Somebody just prompted in their conscience. Somebody just inwardly prompting and saying, I, I really just, I don't know if I should go, but I feel like I should go. And it's like, go. Go in humility, go in love, go ready to listen as much as more so to, than to speak, but go. It's causing a hindrance in that relationship and in that fellowship. Well, we'll have to end it there for time, but we'll pick it up uh, uh, and look at this a bit more next week. But here is, the, here is the overall point, if I could leave us on this one, this one point, is that when we love one another, 
and we're concerned about God's blessing in each other's life, we'll be concerned about a person's spiritual walk with the Lord. And when we see patterns of sin, when we see dissension taking place, when we see a break in relationship, when we see somebody going down a path of error, it is an expression of our love for them, our care for the glory of Christ, and our desire to see his blessing in their life to go to such a one. Now we'll talk about next week reasons that we don't go to a person and wrong ways to go and actually how we're to respond when we're the ones being come to. <laughs> so we'll mention that. But here I just leave you to say that God cares about holiness. He wants to bless his people. He wants to show us good. He delights in being generous with us. But in order to do that, we have to be a people who are pursuing his glory above all things and pursuing obedience to him above all things and who are delighting in the gospel together and the freedom of the grace that we share and experience in Christ. And so with that, let me pray and then we'll be led in the closing hymn. Father, we thank you for, again, your instructions to us. Uh, we thank you that we stand in grace and that everything we do, even when we do address sin in one another's life, is done with graciousness. Is done, as we'll consider it another time, and your word says in Galatians, that we who are spiritual, one under the power of the Holy Spirit, one who is demonstrating the fruit of love, patience, gentleness, self-control, and all of these good things, that one who is ready to do it in a right manner, we are to go to such a one to restore them, to bear their burden, to help them, and in the humility knowing that we too are sinners and can fall even in that same area if we don't watch our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have given us instruction that upholds holiness while at the same time magnifying grace and mercy. And so help us to hold these things in balance as we love one another enough to pursue together God's blessing, your blessing in our lives. And if there are any here again, Lord, who are outside of Christ and all of this is strange to them, may you open their eyes this very day. We thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.